Hi, my name is Seth, and I'm the pastor of Perkinsville Church. It's an honor to have you join us for one of our worship gatherings online. I hope it's an encouragement to you, and I want to encourage you to connect with us in a more meaningful way. Joining us in person on Sunday mornings at 8.45 or 11 is a great way to do that. But you can also do it right now by downloading the Perkinsville app or going to perkinsville.org connect. And when you do that, I'll have an opportunity to connect with you personally, and I would love that opportunity. In the meantime, I hope this is an encouragement again, and enjoy a glimpse into the life of Perkinsville Church. too quickly beyond that last moment. Um, I think just the good and rightness of that moment. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know me, you know that he's someone I lean in heavily in terms of just practical theology. And um, he had, a, over the course of his life, many times, he, initially he was a pacifist. But watching what was happening to Germany during the Third Reich and to see what the German peoples were being led to believe he stood for Christ the entire time and ultimately, after a failed attempt at Hitler's life, uh, he was imprisoned and he would write a number of works, including one called Life Together. If you'll catch the irony of that moment, him writing a book called Life Together as he sits in a prison cell. And he, he makes this statement, speaking of community, that should we ever experience true community one time during this life, we've experienced more grace than any of us ever deserve to experience true community. Community is not formed by the people within it by the life experiences found therein. It's not found by socioeconomic groups or even interests or hobbies. True community is formed when a people proclaim the glory of God together. When it looks beyond itself to a holy God and proudly proclaims in the midst of a world that there is one true God and He is holy. And so just if your rhythm of your week forces you to move on too quickly, I want you just to acknowledge that moments like that where we sing and proclaim God's glory is more grace than any of us deserve. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 19 verses 21 through the end of the chapter. Last week I entitled this sermon Battleground, focusing on the spiritual warfare coming to light with the sons of Sceva using the name of Jesus wrongly for their spiritual practices and God proves himself worthy and many repent and believe and trust Christ in Ephesus. Uh, this week we see the outcome of that gospel proclamation. We see people changing and anytime there is change, the gospel, the gospel always changes things and when people feel threatened or they feel changed, they push back. And so what we see today is a riot. We're going to talk about a religion that was the primary religion in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. But we're also going to see the common traits of that religion as it applies even today to cultural Christianity. 
And so, so I, I want you to, to listen well and listen thoughtfully and listen to the Spirit more than my words. Uh, because what we're experiencing in our generation and our culture may not include a goddess named Artemis. Many times it includes a little G God that we may call Jesus. Cultural Christianity is rampant. And I want us just to be honest with ourselves and to see the power of the true gospel, the power of true Christianity, the power of biblical Christianity. That, that's what I want us to do. So I want to share this quote with you before we read the text. I'm going to lean back in on this quote a few times, but A.W. Tozer wrote many years ago, if the Holy Spirit w was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I just say that because there's going to be a tendency when you read this passage, unlike last week with the sons of Sceva, that we see a very practical argument being made. We see a practical problem. Quite literally, Demetrius the silversmith is frustrated because he's going to lose income from conversion to Christianity. We'll, we'll explain that in the text. So we have a very practical problem. We have a very practical riot, I guess if you could call a riot practical, but it's very physical and seen and known. And everything we read about in the text today is very different than last week in the sense that it just, it just feels very obvious but I don't want us to overlook what's lacking. The Holy Spirit's lacking. And I aim to show you that this religion that we read about, although none of you probably claim allegiance to, to a, 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 a Greek goddess from a couple thousand years ago, that, that the, the traits and the religion that she provides, you too may be an adherent of. And I, I want us just to see the power and the contrast between true and false Christianity, looking at the religion of Ephesus. And so let's pray and I'll read the text and we'll jump right in this morning. Father, your strength and your power, it's to these things I appeal. To your spirit I ask to be gracious and good in convicting us as people, in revealing your power, the Son's promise. <laughs> the Father's glory. And I ask, Lord, that, that we as, um, as followers of Jesus this morning, and perhaps some of us are at a, at a point of question or conflict and searching, be good and gracious to all of us. Strengthen us in our faith or call us to faith for the first time. And do it all for your glory here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so if you weren't here last week, just, just remember that um, you had a pretty interesting act. Paul goes into Ephesus, or he's in Ephesus in here for a very long time, and uh, at some point that those who even uh, touched the handkerchiefs of aprons that had touched Paul's skin would, would touch them and be healed. This goes back to like Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, where, where, where Jesus shows all these miraculous signs, including a woman reaches up and touches the hem of his garment and is healed. And, and so the seven sons of Sceva are, I mean, there's this itinerant Jewish exorcist market in Ephesus, and there's these seven sons of Sceva, and they, they say, hey, that Jesus does some pretty cool stuff. Let's start using his name in all our spiritual work. And so they go in where the, there's this man who, who is, who is uh, uh, 
possessed by an evil spirit and he literally attacks and wounds them and they run out naked and bloodied. And, and it's just, it's crazy. And then all of a sudden, a lot of these folks, these, these pr- um, practitioners of black and dark magic repent and trust Jesus. And so like the landscape of Ephesus is changing rapidly. And so that leads us into to the result. And so after these events, chapter uh, 19, verse 21 says, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Very humble way of saying that this guy made a lot of people wealthy. Okay, he was a silversmith, and, he, and, and uh, amongst the craftsmen in the city, they were wealthy because they would literally make idols of Artemis for people to buy. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So his line of, his, his line of reasoning, his argument here is, is A, that we will lose our fortunes, we will lose our income, and secondly, by the way, this goddess named Artemis will also lose her fame globally. When they heard this, They were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I I love that statement. Like, everyone's mad. They just all don't know why. Like, that's, that's, that's the foolishness of this scene. Like, you know, I see so many people. People are people, no matter where you go, in all of history or all of the world. Like, oh, I'm just mad. Let me be mad about something. What are you mad about? I don't really know what I'm mad about, but I'm mad. So, so just keep in mind at this point, it's kind of interesting because it, this is obviously a dangerous crowd. Paul being Paul, bullheaded Paul, you know, we, we, sometimes we, we elevate Paul beyond what we probably ought to elevate Paul, but he's like, I'm going in, I'm going in, I'm going in. They're like, no, back off. I love Paul's personality, but there are some, there's some wise counsel around him and they say, probably shouldn't go in there, Paul. It's not going to be good. So, They don't know why they've come together, but verse 33 says, Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Oh, that's what it's about. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Sacred stone, by the way, is probably a meteorite. I hate to burst your bubble, but it's uh, a lot of times, I mean, meteorites as if they have fallen to earth for thousands upon thousands of years, religions have made them very significant. And so most likely this is a meteorite that fell from the sky. And and so that 
was a sign from the gods that Artemis is to belong here in Ephesus. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. And when, we, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right, so you have this building scene and you think it's going to get real. Paul wants to go in, man, if, if, if you had never read the Bible before and perhaps this was a, 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 a movie that you were watching, you're like, oh man, this is getting real. Paul's getting ready to go in, fist ablazing, preaching Holy Spirit, fire down on him, and it's getting real. And then the, 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 the chaos is, is growing, but all of a sudden the town clerk is like, hey guys, don't anymore. And it's over. So it's kind of anticlimactic if you think about it that way. But but it is, it is, I think the point here is really before the outcome. I mean, we see things in very differently. And by the way, this, from this, this point forward in the book of Acts, we really see this different relationship with civil authorities from this point. But they pretty much say, we're going to get in trouble if we keep rioting because the Romans want one thing more than anything else in all their empire. They want order. They want civility. And we are risking that standing with the Romans. So we're going to hush up. There's no charge here. We're going to keep moving. So let's look back at Artemis a little bit. We need to learn a little bit more about Artemis, don't we? And I'm going to make this statement. Artemis is enough for most. And so I want to examine the religion of Artemis, and I say that, that she is enough for most. The religion she offered is enough for most people, whether it's, in, whether it's 2,000 years ago or it's modern day. Well, that sounds odd. We're in a Christian church, and I'm saying that Artemis is enough for most. Well, that's the truth. Most people have no desire to submit themselves to a holy God. The Bible says this. Most people are satisfied with kind of a, an auxiliary or a supportive role that God may play in their life. And that's exactly what Artemis or all of the gods and goddesses really provided for them. She has a ton of influence over the city, though, and we need to learn a little bit more about that, including this temple where she supposedly resides. This is a big deal. Ephesus is supposedly the home of this goddess. And so she was the most popular goddess in the first century, if you read writings from this era historically, she's the most commonly mentioned goddess. She's kind of the main thing, even though she's, you know, Zeus's daughter, right? But this is the temple. Pliny the Elder, a historian that we get a lot of information from in this era, era describes this temple as one that was 425 feet in length, 225 feet wide, 127 columns around it, 60 feet high, by the way, and four feet across, all of them with facades that were decorated with gods and goddesses from Greek mythology. This thing towered over Ephesus because this sacred stone had fallen from the sky. So this led to, I mean, the economy of the city was driven by belief in this goddess. The Romans referred to her as Diana, but she had a number of responsibilities. You know, if you understand mythology, each god or goddess had particular spheres of life over which they were in control. And she had a few of them. One of those, you may see a statue. In fact, uh, um, a brother had been traveling and saw a statue of Artemis with a deer because she was the goddess over game. So if you went hunting, you would pray to Artemis for a catch, right, for a, for a buck. But she was also the goddess, and this is most pointed here, of fertility, and so if you are a woman in this era, you are praying constantly without ceasing to Artemis to provide you a child. 
Now, this was really significant in the Roman Empire because we are living in this time in an era when Rome was always protecting or expanding their borders. They literally needed the strongest army in the world to do so. We're also seeing this book happen in a time when only like four out of a hundred people born would see the age of 50. And so you needed to backfill rather quickly. What I'm saying is the Roman Empire wanted all their families to have at least five kids, at least five kids, keep pushing out babies. And so guess who was central to not only the good of Ephesus, but to the continuity and safety of the Roman Empire? Artemis. She was critical. She was necessary for the advancement and preservation of the Roman Empire. So everyone in the Roman Empire, that's why the first century, we see so much lifting up of this lady named Artemis. She was critical. Makes sense. And so Demetrius comes in. He says, listen, I'm an entrepreneur. I see an opportunity here. Because nobody believed they were actually holding a goddess in their hands. But when they held an idol of Artemis or any other god, they recognized that they were worshiping that. And hopefully it would then transfer to the god or goddess themselves. So Demetrius just says, listen. I think there's an opportunity here, and the silversmiths make a lot of money selling these idols in Ephesus. So none of that explains why I suggest that Artemis is sufficient for most. Well, because if we're honest about it in this text, and we'll get to the, the fear they exhibit here in just a minute, but here's what Artemis does. She offers you immediate benefit, whether it be for fortune and hunting or provision and having children, you could just kind of go to her and call upon her to provide for those things. You could buy things, you could offer things, you could do things that would literally increase your standing before her and increase your chances of blessing. You could look up at the temple with pleasure and know that all you do to preserve that mighty temple will get you brownie points with the gods and goddesses. She could keep you safe, she could keep you happy, she could provide the life that every human wants. That's the function of a goddess. Just don't make her bad. Keep her happy and do what she says to do. I say that Artemis is sufficient for most because of what people, what people really want with religion and what they really want with gods or the idea of gods is a little assistance in getting the things they think they need but they may recognize they're powerless to achieve on their own. That's typically the way that most of us approach God outside of Christ. Uh, you know, I can do A, B, and C, but, but D I can't do. So let me petition a God to take care of that for me. They just need to implore the gods, or God maybe even, to satisfy the requests of their hearts. Not to interfere in life, but to supplement the things that you want in life. And all of this was readily accessible through a goddess like Artemis, you could buy a statue, put it in your home, and say, I want this for my life. That's fascinating. And, and you know, not only provided for the empire, like, Artemis must have been like the feature goddess of make Rome great again if there was such a campaign. But like, she will do it. She will do it. Like, like I hope you see the translation here. Like, these people aren't crazy. If I could call upon a God in my hand and say, listen, I, 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 just, I, need, I want another baby, or I want this, or I want that. Would you just help me out here? We start to see some common trends that are at play today, even with Christianity. And I just simply say that, that, that as far away as this may be, listen, there's really no, 
serious mentioning of, of like loyal followers of Greek mythology after like the ninth century. It, it, it has all but gone away to the history books. But we've just backfilled the same religious problem that the gods and goddesses fulfilled 2,000 years ago. We've put different names in it, even Christianity. Christianity without the spirit is very similar to Artemis. Just because Greek gods have faded off into history doesn't mean that the same religious practice and tendencies don't remain today. Again, we need to go back to Tozer's quote here to understand what I'm saying a little bit more. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. So I want to apply a term here. What am I talking about when I say Christianity without the Spirit? Christianity without the gospel. Simplest term that most of you or many of you may know about is cultural Christianity. Greatest enemy of the church Today, it is not, it is, there are a lot of enemies of the church. Cultural Christianity is the most subtle of enemies of the church today. Cultural Christianity. What is cultural Christianity? It is Christianity without an active relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, right now you're saying, oh, those people, those cultural Christians. And I don't want you to be too quick to shake it off of you for just a minute. I want you to be honest enough Here's, the, here's, here's cultural Christianity versus biblical Christianity. Cultural Christianity says there is a God we want, and biblical Christianity says there is a God who is. That's fundamentally different. There is a God we want, and there is a God who is. The difference is, is it a God made in our image, or are we made in the image of God? Let me give you some, some, some practical examples of cultural Christianity. It's the tendency to be shallow in our understanding of God. Wanting him to be more of like a gentle grandfather type who spoils us and lets us have our own way. Cultural Christianity is sensing a need for God, but kind of on our own terms. You get that? It's wanting the God we have underlined in our Bibles, but not the rest of him. It's allowing the culture to influence us above the word. And then we try to have the best of both worlds and we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Cultural Christianity teaches that instead of wanting to please God by doing what he says is right, we, we ultimately do what is right in our own eyes. It's reading our Bible with an agenda, if we even read it at all. It's this credo here, plan and then pray. In, in many ways, what cultural Christianity does is add Jesus to your life as another interest in an already crowded schedule. One, one author writing on this called, from Man in the Mirror says that cultural Christianity is probably better described as spare tire Christianity. We want the God we have underlined in our Bibles without wanting the rest of him too. Cultural Christians have let the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. And here's the scary part about cultural Christians, according to Matthew 7. Cultural Christians are at a high risk for a great crash because they're built upon sand and not a rock. <clears throat> and by default, by the way, by default, you will be a cultural Christian without an active, intentional pursuit of biblical Christianity. 
Like if you just say, I am a Christian and you don't intentionally seek Christ, you will land as a cultural Christian. And this is no different than Artemis. This is no different than what we see happening 2,000 years ago. And that's why they're so fearful. What is the problem here? They're fearful not only of their income, but that Artemis may lose her glory. So they recognize something. They recognize something powerful about the gospel without ever truly recognizing the power of the gospel. They recognize that what they believe is threatened and what they believe may be lost. And I don't know if it'd be the equivalent of 2023, but maybe they turn on the news in the morning and they say, what are we going to do? They feel like their faith is actually able to be destroyed. They feel like with the pen of a stroke of a president, they may not be able to worship the one true God. That's, that's not biblical Christianity. You know why the church seems so scared right now? Because we're filled with cultural Christians. And we actually are. If you're a cultural Christian, your faith is at stake, what little faith it may be. Because government can take that from you. Government can take the benefits and the protections and the comforts of being historically Christian. It is a fearful place to be when you are merely religious with no relationship with Christ. And this is what I see today. I see the church freaking out. Whatever will become, what will we do? How will we survive? Well, cultural Christianity won't. It's eroding quickly, faster than you or I can even tell. But if our faith is built upon a rock and secured by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we too share in the promise of Paul there in Romans 8 that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tell me what part of that verse implies that there is an earthly power that has the authority or the ability to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no, there is no exception to Paul's words here. There is nothing, there is nothing that can come across the news that can separate us if we are truly in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's, that's what's at play here. Fear. Fear is at play in this text. They are destroying our religion. They are destroying our way of life. They are taking away the very opportunities we have to rightly worship Artemis. They are removing her from her rightful place in her temple on high. Cultural Christianity believes the same thing, but true Christianity cannot be defeated. The fallacy that they made, as well as adherence of cultural Christianity, is that it can fail. I promise you, the church cannot be defeated. The glory of God cannot be silenced. The core of their argument is that their livelihood and everything else they knew would be lost forever if something was not done today. But I ask you some real questions. True Christianity cannot be defeated. So listen, can can anything truly threaten God? Can anything prevail against Christ's church? Answer this question honestly and look at the landscape of your life and, and let these answers soak in. Can anything threaten God? Now, as crazy and nervous and anxious and fearful as you may feel any given day of the year when you hear about all the crazy changes in the world and culture and society, I promise you, nothing can threaten God. Can anything prevail against Christ's church? No. Yes, all these things can threaten you and they can threaten me. They can threaten our families, this church, the institution that is Christendom, but nothing can defeat God.
And my question is, if it can be destroyed, is it even real? If it can be destroyed, is it worth worshiping? This is the fundamental question for every church in 2023, particularly when churches get into business meetings. If it can be destroyed, is it even worth worshiping? The church for far too long has been worshiping and lifting up things that can be destroyed. Our faith, true faith, is the only thing that remains. Because this is the contrast. This is the great contrast between the faith of the apostles and the faith of the Ephesians. They said this. They said, we have a great goddess who sent a stone from the sky. And we built a temple to put that stone in and keep it safe and keep Artemis safe. We got to keep her safe. But think about the faith of Stephen, of Paul and Peter. We have a God who sent his son to dwell among us and to die for us. He was raised from the dead and he is seated high and he sent his spirit to dwell within us. We are his temple. We don't keep him safe. He keeps us. He seals us and he keeps us safe for the day of redemption, not to keep us in safety here, but to keep us in the world for the sake of his mission. This is such a contrast with the message of the Ephesians. You know, you look back at the New Testament and the world to which the New Testament writers spoke to the church, particularly I'm just thinking of, of Peter's letters. And he says, your faith will be known and be made known in the, in the trials. A world, this world separates wheat and weed. It separates the false and true converts, the pagan from the Christ follower and the cultural Christian from the disciple of Christ. But let me just tell you this. We need not fear. We need to believe true Christianity cannot be defeated. This passage for me shows me what the posture of the losing position looks like. And I'm, and I'm so concerned that the church is getting distracted. I'm so concerned that we as the body are getting distracted, living out fear and anxiety, feeling like our faith is at risk. And it's not. I say that from the position here, and I, I think about conversations I've had with Dave and many other brothers, like it doesn't mean it's going to be easy and popular. And it means that we very well may be offering ourselves up. But we need not fear. So I want to go back to this Tozer quote as I work towards a conclusion because we want to celebrate baptism this morning again. A.W. Tozer. We put that quote up there for me one more time, the Tozer quote. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Um, 
in the late 60s, early 70s. The Jesus Revolution. Revolution was the word Southern California. Is that what broke out in Southern California? You remember? Was it the Jesus Revolution? Movement. Jesus Movement, I'm sorry. There's a movie coming out about that. Kelsey Grammer's the curmudgeon preacher who, who really started the Jesus Movement. Um, but there's, so the movie's coming out, looks really good. And so anyway, the story goes, he's, he's, um, he's preaching in a church, pastoring in a church there in Southern California. And, you know, the hippie movement of the, of the late sixties, early seventies, right. Transforming America. And like, you know what everybody was saying about him, right? Well, they're going to destroy everything. Now they've got kids and grandkids, but, uh, but he's sitting there preaching to like a crusty church. And I mean crusty, like, and uh, hippie comes to his door, and this is, you know, based on the story as it went, and he just starts inviting these hippies into his church, and the curmudgeons are on one side, and the hippies are on the other, and uh, they're all barefoot hippies, and somebody says, preacher, <laughs> a quote from the preview, preacher, they're going to ruin our shag carpet. <laughs> Oh boy, hurry up, please. <laughs> Ruin that shag. But it's the story of what happens when a very, I mean, Kelsey Grammer, I, I love his acting, but I look forward to it. But, but the movement is this story of what happens when you look beyond the institutionalism and you look beyond all the preconceived notions and expectations about what the church is and you simply look around you in your community to see the people who are hurting and in need of the gospel. And you end up with a room full of curmudgeons and hippies who learn to love one another and the curmudgeons lose their curmudgeon and the hippies learn about Jesus. And the Jesus movement began. I think we're very similar today. One of the quotes in that, in that uh, ad say this, the hippies look at Kelsey Grammer and they say, we need open doors and your church doors are closed right now. And it convicts them. Brothers and sisters, I say this because there are a lot of places that people can gather and go and believe a number of things in 2023. But when you have a church committed to true belief led by the Holy Spirit. It cannot be defeated. And so for you, as we will pray and sing this morning prior to baptism, this all begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, like a real relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where this begins. Not, not just the belief in a historical Jesus, but, this, but the surrendering, the turning over of yourself to Jesus himself the present, active, working Jesus. To put on Jesus, to open your hands, and to watch the Spirit of God call you and commission you and live actively through you. And there's no magic formula, no maze, no puzzle. It is the posture of your heart to open your hands and call out the name of Jesus in order to be guided and directed by his spirit. Artemis 
didn't live too long. Her name no longer is lifted up in the shrines or in the city of Ephesus. Artemis is in a history book, and that's it. And so as much as they cried out, long live Artemis, and great is Artemis, there's only one God, one true God, who is seated high today, and let's pray to him. So, Father, your name outlasts all other names. Your glory outshines all other attempts at glory. Your fame is far greater. Your goodness is much more. Your holiness is far higher. And all of this you bring to us in Christ Jesus. And afford and invite us the opportunity to know you, to receive you, and your spirit. Lord, as we cry out and claim that all we have is Christ, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts not only be thoughtful and pleasing to you, but thoughtful and pleasing to you because what we sing is true. Lord, I I, I do. I pray for souls in this room today um, that for the first time they may turn over their hearts and their lives to the calling of Christ, open-handed to the Holy Spirit of God. Great is our God. In Jesus' name, amen.